All right, morning, everyone. Why don't you open your Bibles to Luke 15 and go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Sunday mornings, we're working our way through Luke's Gospel verse by verse, and we have been working through the parable of the prodigal son. We'll start the scripture reading at verse 16 for context. <clears throat> but when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. You may be seated. Father, I've been so blessed by this wonderful window into your heart that we've been studying in this parable. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to give us insight into who you are. So much of the New Testament focused on uh, your son, the second person within the triune nature of God. But here we get to see you and uh, represented by this wonderful father here, Lord. And I pray that we would be able to see uh, in this relationship between this father and son, our relationship with you and the ways in which uh, you, the, you, this father treats his son and the, uh, paralleling the way that you would treat repentant sinners who, uh, who head home in humility and would be received by you in the same loving way. I thank you for your grace, Lord. Uh, we sing about it. We um, covet it for our lives, and we see such an incredible demonstration of grace being uh, increasing. Where sin has increased, grace would increase even more, Lord. And so I thank you for this demonstration here um, of your grace and how it exceeds even the sin of this prodigal son. Uh, help us to remember this and uh, regarding the sin in our lives, Lord. I pray you'd use me as your vessel. It has blessed me all week that you would know who would be here and what you would desire them to hear. And so I pray each person would have anticipation and be ready uh, to meet not uh, with me or hear from me, but to meet with you and to hear from you, Lord. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Many men. So the title of this morning's sermon is Where Sin Increased, Grace Increased All the More. So our last sermon, we finished verse 21, and we're going to be picking up at verse 22. But first, notice the confession that the son had planned. I'll read it quickly because uh, we just covered it in scripture reading. He's going to go in verse 18, and he says, it says, I'll arise, I'll go to my father. This is what I'll say to him. Father, I've sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so I don't know how long the trip home was, but he has this planned. And perhaps he's rehearsing it in his mind as he's returning home after uh, all this time. I don't know whether it's months or years that he's been gone. His father rushes out to meet him and then picture the son deliver this confession or I should say, begin to deliver the confession, because look in verse 21, he's interrupted. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, 
bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us celebrate and so the son begins the confession gets through an amount of it but isn't able to complete it because the father in all of his joy interrupts him with these commands that he gives to the servants the father ignores his son's statement about no longer being worthy to be called his son he will have none of that for the son that returns home instead he has many things planned to communicate this son's full restoration back into the family and notice that it says i'll draw your attention to a few things servants plural servants plural there isn't just one servant nearby all of the servants that this wealthy family has are expected to respond or to spring into action uh, at the at the father's commands he wants his son to feel like a prince and everyone around him needs to treat him that way the son is going to stand there and then everyone available is going to be waiting on him hand and foot and notice the first two words he says bring quickly bring quickly and so the father didn't just passively give these commands sort of gently or subtly when you get around to it do these things or if you have a break this afternoon or after your next meal or when you feel up to it go ahead and do go ahead and do this and that for my son who's come home he commands them he says bring quickly get moving nobody better be standing around and it reminds me of the military when there would be a high-ranking command or a high-ranking um, officer who would give a command and you suddenly sort of see all the other soldiers you know jump to attention and then spring into action to do what this commander says that's kind of the imagery that i have here and so <clears throat> all of these servants just picture them heading off to do what the father says he tells them to do a handful of things for the son and we're going to look at each of them briefly so that we can appreciate what they represent and so first he tells him bring the best robe and put it on him bring the best robe and put it on him now for a moment i'd like you to picture how this son probably looked when he returned home and what do you think how did he look yeah he is filthy he was stinky what had he been doing he'd been feeding pigs things have been so bad in his life he desired to eat what the pigs had been eating he had squandered his inheritance there had been a famine in the land these people would know a poverty that we don't know even people in our nation who are considered to live below the poverty line are still wealthier than most people throughout human history and so when this son comes home in this uh, incredibly destitute condition it's almost i almost picture the father you know being almost blinded to his son's condition by his love and affection and joy associated with the son being home and he throws his hands around his son and he's lavishing him with kisses and then suddenly the father's like we got to change your clothes <laughs> you know you are filthy you are stinking i am not going to have my son looking like this and so he says bring the robe what i want you to notice is it's singular he says bring the best robe he doesn't say get a change of clothes or he doesn't say go in the house and just look for something nice that would better than the clothing that he's wearing here the father had a certain robe in mind that the servants would recognize and he says go get that very best piece of clothing that we have that robe that is reserved for ultra special occasions 
and put that on my son. Now, in our day, many people have that one piece of uh, very fancy clothing that is used for uh, only brought out for that rare special occasion. For women, it could be that very expensive ballroom gown. Um, for men, it could be that tuxedo that uh, they try to fit into for too long. And so this is that situation. There is that piece of clothing that is known to the family, and he tells the servants, go get that piece. The Greek word for best, it's protos, protos, and it means first in rank or honor or place. And so the robe would have been beautiful. It probably would have been embroidered. It's one that would have served as a sign of honor for the son. And this brings us to the first part of lesson one. The son was given part one, a robe for honor. The son was given part one, a robe for honor. The Jews lived in very close-knit communities, and so the word would have spread about this son's rebellion and then departure. Local people would have known that the son disgraced his father and brought shame on the family. There's times when I'm reading through commentaries, studying that I can see something a few times, and I'll have to determine whether it's biblical or whether I can have it in the sermon. And so there's a couple different commentaries. I'm not convinced this is true, so I'm, I didn't put it in the sermon. I'll briefly share it with you to communicate something, although I'm not, I'm not convinced this is the case, that the reason that the father ran to his son and embraced him was so that the father would be stoned or he would have to be stoned when the son was stoned. So there were commentators that were convinced that the son coming home from his rebellion would be stoned for this rebellion. And so the father runs out there to serve as this shield and grab his son to communicate, well, if you're going to have to stone your son, my son, you're going to have to stone me too. I'm not convinced of that, but I am convinced that part of what that's communicating that everyone would have known about this son's rebelliousness is true. The word would have spread. So what do you think this robe communicates? that he's restored back, that he is not to be viewed as uh, dishonored, uh, as being very dishonorable and having disgraced our family. He's back as part of our family. He is my son again. Also, the father knows that he's about to throw a huge what? Party or celebration. He wants his son to be the guest of honor. And so you picture, even if the Jews clean themselves up, to come to this celebration, most of them are going to show up in their plain, ordinary Middle Eastern clothes. And so you picture hundred or hundreds of people showing up like that, and then one person in the midst of all of them that is in this beautiful, embroidered, probably colorful robe, and you can imagine how much this son is going to stand out at this celebration. So the father wanted his son to get the attention, and that was going to be the case. He also wants his son to have full dignity, and this relates to the second thing the son received. He says, put a ring on his hand. Put a ring on his hand. He's given the full dignity and authority of his father, and this brings us to the next part of lesson one. The son was given part to a ring for authority. The son was given part to a ring for authority. So you've got this robe 
that's for looks or to restore the son's honor, but then he's got this ring that is for authority. And this would have been a ring that had the family crest or seal on it. Maybe from movies, you'd be familiar with uh, a ring that has that family crest and you press it down into the melted wax to show uh, approval of official documents. That's what's going on here. And so this gave the son all the father's authority and allowed him to act on the family's behalf. And so it's almost like he's being, the, being given the keys to the kingdom here. The father was communicating that everything he had belonged to his son. I've told you many times before that the Old Testament prefigures the New Testament, and there is an Old Testament account that resembles what is happening here, and it is Potiphar's behavior toward Joseph. Let me just read a few of the verses, and you tell me if you notice the similarities. Potiphar tells Joseph, Genesis 41:40, You shall be over all my house. All of my people shall order themselves as you command. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, and he put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Now, if you're like me, and you're not uh, super involved in the financial world as an, an accountant, you're probably unfamiliar with the word usufruct. Anyone heard of usufruct before? Usufruct is a term that historically refers to being given the authority to exercise control over someone else's property or estate. And so that's what we're seeing here, an example of usufruct, where the father is giving his son full authority over the estate by placing this ring on his finger, the ability to act on his behalf. He's the heir of everything. And then look what he receives next. He receives these shoes on his feet. Servants and slaves did not wear shoes. And so the son wasn't even able to finish his confession or, and uh, complete the request to be a servant. But the fact is the father was not going to allow that anyway. Because by giving the shoes to the son, he was communicating that you're not a servant. You're not a slave on our property. He might have wanted that, but the father's actions communicate the son's sonship. And this brings us to the next part of lesson one. The son was given part three, shoes for sonship. Shoes, excuse me, for sonship. The son thought he was no longer worthy to be called his father's son, but the father definitely did not see it that way. And what the father did with his son here pictures what God the Father does with repentant sinners. He makes us sons, and he makes us heirs. Everything the prodigal son receives symbolizes what we receive when we become God's children. Now, I'll tell you something interesting. The father is a picture type of God the Father. As I've said uh, different times over these weeks, Jesus preaches this parable primarily to reveal the heart of his heavenly father. But the father in the parable gives the son so much that you would almost be led to think that this son does not serve as a picture type of us, but that he serves as a picture type of Christ at least when you get to this point, definitely not the rebelliousness of the son, 
you wouldn't think that that causes him to look like Christ, but in terms of all of the blessing and honor and authority and dignity that is lavished on this son, you could look and think that he must, at this point, transition into being a picture or type of the Son of God and not us. But it is overwhelmingly clear in Scripture that being a Son of God also means being a joint heir with Christ, and that what is given to Christ is given to us. Romans 8.16, we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ, then you are heirs according to promise. Titus 3.7, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Think about Jesus' high priestly prayer. In an almost unimaginable moment, we wouldn't believe this if it wasn't recorded for us in Scripture, Jesus prays to his Father, John 17, 22, and says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. So we've got Christ himself saying that he wants to impart to us some of his own glory. John MacArthur said, Every adopted child will receive by divine grace the full inheritance that Christ receives by divine right. And so what we're seeing here, all of this dignity and this honor and this authority and blessing that this son is being given by the father, it prefigures the dignity, the honor, the blessing, the inheritance that is given to every repentant sinner by God the Father. Now, as we talked about at the beginning of this parable, the Jewish practice was for the firstborn to receive a double portion. And if you were not a firstborn, then you were pretty much out of luck. If you were a son, but you weren't the firstborn, you did not expect much. Now, who's the firstborn? I guess I kind of gave it away a little bit. Jesus is, right? That's one of the titles for him, the firstborn over all creation. And so we would expect him to receive everything. But going in contrast to the Jewish tradition, and even in contrast to what the law commanded, we see that we are made joint heirs with the firstborn. This is what prosperity preaching is. It's unfortunate that we've lost that term. I don't want to be labeled a prosperity preacher. <laughs> and I would tell you, I don't want to listen to prosperity preachers. But there's a sense in which that's unfortunate because there's an incredible amount of prosperity that is given to children of God. As joint heirs with Christ, there is an inheritance that awaits us that makes us incredibly prosperous. And this is really the prosperity that prosperity preachers should be preaching. If we're going to encourage our congregations and let them know how they're going to prosper so that you can be excited about the next life or you can be excited about what awaits you in Christ, this is what you want to be thinking about. The inheritance that is yours as a joint heir with Christ or as a son or daughter of God it is an incredible amount of prosperity that is given to us. It's one of the most wonderful truths for believers contained in Scripture. 
I'm convinced if we focused more on this inheritance that we have in Christ, can you consider for a moment the implications that that would have for our Christian lives? Let me ask that one more time. What if we were to focus more on the inheritance that we have in Christ as one of God's children, as being joint heirs with Jesus? What effect would that have on us? I mean, how much joy would that give us? How much would that encourage us to look beyond this life to the next life? How much would that take the trials and suffering that we experience on this side of heaven and give it a relative scale that looks much smaller than it did before as we consider all that awaits us? Look at the next verse. Verse 23, it says, Bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. So the father calls for this party or this celebration, and when he does, do you see how it's continuing the pattern or theme that had been established by the first two parables? In the first two parables, when the individuals find what was lost, what is their response? Look in verse 6. The shepherd finds his sheep, he puts it on his shoulders, brings it home, calls his friends and neighbors, and says, Rejoice with me, I found my sheep. Verse 9. The lady finds her coin. She calls her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, I found my coin. And that pattern continues. The father finds his son and he says, Rejoice with me, let's have a celebration. I have found my son. And I want you to notice, again, we're seeing the singular nature of the gift. The father doesn't say, Bring any of the calves he says bring singularly the fattened calf there would be one calf in particular the servants would know which one it was that was being saved for a special occasion bring the fattened calf and kill it so just like there was a specific robe there's also this specific calf wealthy people they had one calf that they kept fattened up for special occasions. Typically, it would be a wedding, but it could be used in other occasions. In this case, the father thought it was just such an occasion when his son returns home. No other calf will do. He says, it is going to have to be the best calf for my son. It is going to have to be the calf that we have been preparing for such a monumental celebration as this. They don't have refrigeration. And so once this calf is killed, all of it is going to have to be eaten. And so a fattened calf like this, it could fill or could feed lots of people. I did have a number from a commentary. Or actually, how many, how many people, Jim, would a fattened calf like this feed? Any? How many? Okay, our, our, our commentary said 200. Is that right? Oh, okay. Okay, well, I read it with Katie, and she's like, 200 people? That sounds like a lot of people to be fed by one calf. But Jim just said that it could do that, so I guess the commentary was, was, was probably right. So you picture a fattened calf like this, slaughtered, able to fill, feed 200 people. And you say, well, that seems a little excessive. Actually, it wasn't, because who's going to be invited to this? Everyone. The village is going to come out. The word is going to spread that everyone is supposed to come and celebrate this son's return. In fact, it actually would have been an insult to anyone locally who was not invited to this celebration because when you hear hey the fattened calf was and that's kind of the language hey they're killing the fattened calf it's a time to celebrate for someone not to be invited would be terribly insulting instead it would be hey the fattened calf was killed we're going to go and we're going to join them we know that this must be a celebration that we're expected to attend as well now for a moment think about the parable of the rich fool 
Luke 12, 19. He says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So it's interesting the similarity between the parable of the rich fool and the parable of the prodigal son. In both of them, we see eating, celebrating, rejoicing. But the rich man was a fool because of his selfishness. What was he celebrating? He's celebrating himself, celebrating his wealth, his possessions. In the parable of the prodigal son, what did they celebrate? God's plan of redemption. They celebrate repentance. They celebrate salvation. And it's very instructive for us that this is what we should celebrate as well. We should celebrate people's salvation. We should celebrate people's repentance. If we have individuals under church discipline who repent and they return to our fellowship, that is a time to celebrate or rejoice over what has been produced in their hearts. Now, let me get you to think about something. When we read the previous two parables, I told you that there's an amount of hyperbole or exaggeration in those two parables that's characteristic of Jesus's teaching. He regularly used exaggeration, cut off your hand, pluck out your eye, a a camel going through the eye of a needle, hate your your parents and your children. And he uses this kind of exaggeration to drive a point home. And we see an amount of exaggeration or absurdity in these parables as well. For example, look in verse 6. When the shepherd comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, and he says to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Now, you could easily read over this and miss the absurdity, but if you think about it for a moment, we can imagine a shepherd finding a lost sheep, but calling together his friends and family and telling all of them to celebrate with him because his sheep that was lost was found would probably cause all of his friends and family to say what? This is kind of ridiculous. I mean, maybe if a child was born or maybe if there was a wedding, we could celebrate like this. Verse 9, when she found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors and she says, rejoice with me for I found the coin that I had lost. So we can imagine, I mean, this, this will be a little more understandable for us. Let's just say you have a neighbor and she calls you and she says, I have huge news. I want you to rejoice with me. And you're expecting this woman to say what? I'm a grandmother, or I'm going to be a mother, or I'm getting married, or anything along those lines. And then she says, and you're like, well, what is it? I want to celebrate with you. And she says, I found my ring that was lost. You're kind of like, um, I mean, I'm happy for you, but I'm kind of surprised that you're making it this big of a deal. That's what's going on here. There is a level of absurdity or exaggeration that Jesus is using in these parables, and we see more of it in the third parable. Kevin D. Zuber wrote, the father's reaction, like the response of the shepherd to finding the lost sheep and the woman finding the lost coin, was exaggerated. We understand the father being glad when his son returns home. But do you see the exaggeration or absurdity? What father, when his rebellious, immoral son returns home, lavishes him with all these gifts? What father acts like this? 
and then throws a huge celebration. A rebellious son who has lived wickedly, disgraced the family, comes home, and the father says, give him the, the best robe and give him the ring of authority and put the shoes on his feet because he's a son again and kill the fattened calf and let's have this huge celebration that's over the top. It's excessive. The son did not deserve any of this. What did the son deserve? He deserved to be stoned. At the least, he deserved a rebuke. You could go so far as to say that the father actually looks completely irresponsible. If you pictured a father in our day acting like this, you would not think that he was a reasonable, respectable father. You would think his behavior was absurd, even outrageous. You don't treat rebellious children this way. You do not reward them for their rebellion. You punish them. You don't give them gifts. You give them a spanking. With that said, let me ask you this. What do we call it when sinful, rebellious people receive gifts or rewards that they don't deserve? We call that grace. Grace is unmerited or undeserved favor. And you'd be hard-pressed to find a more dramatic demonstration of grace or undeserved or unmerited favor in all of Scripture than what you see with this father lavishing his previously rebellious, immoral son this way. So yes, it's absurd. Yes, it is unfair. Yes, to be honest, it is outrageous. This is how an irresponsible father would act. But if the son didn't get what he deserved, it wouldn't be grace. None of the things that the father gave the son were necessities. Let's make sure we understand this. This is not about the father caring for his son. This is not about the father making sure that his needs are met. He did not give him housing, clothing, or food. And what I mean by that is the, clo- the robe, it wasn't to clothe him. He could have given him clothes. The robe was to give him honor. The shoes were not to protect his feet. He could have given him sandals for that or something else that wasn't intended to communicate that he is my son again. The fattened calf... He could give his son food. He didn't have to kill the fattened calf. He kills the fattened calf because it's intended to communicate. This is a time to celebrate. The father did much more than merely meet the son's needs. He lavished him with grace. Now, I'm concerned that all of us, myself included, could fail to appreciate the incredibly dramatic transformation that has just taken place here. I mean, that's one of the problems. We read through these things so quickly, but we really need to picture them to appreciate what's actually happening. So just for a moment, in your mind's eye, imagine the sun stinking, filthy, reeking after being with the pigs and feeding them, comes home. The father takes those clothes away and gives him this incredible robe, the jewelry, the shoes, The son is transformed from this state of total destitution to complete restoration. And it is a physical picture 
of what transpires spiritually with every repentant sinner. If you are a Christian, you are looking at a physical description of what transpired spiritually when you repented and put your faith in Christ. This is what grace does for repentant sinners. Psalm 40, verse 2, He drew me up from the pit of destruction. He took me out of the miry bog. He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Psalm 103, verse 2, The Lord who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, spiritual diseases, that is, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Now, considering the son's sins and how bad he's been, the verse that came to mind for me, which the sermon title indicates, is Romans 5.20. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And this brings us to lesson two. The son's sin increased, but the father's grace increased more. I want to briefly explain this verse so we can appreciate it and see how well it is demonstrated by this parable. First, it says, the law came in to increase the trespass. You don't have to understand that, but Romans 5.20 begins, the law increased, or excuse me, the law came to increase the trespass. That sounds pretty weird, doesn't it? It almost sounds like God gave the law so that we would sin more. We must know that's not what it means, so then it begs the question, what does it mean? It means that God gave the law so our sin would increase more to us. So it would become more apparent to us so we would recognize that we're sinning. The idea is you're speeding, but you don't know you're speeding until you see the sign that tells you the speed limit that you've exceeded. Well, similarly, you don't know you're sinning until you see the law that says what you're doing is wrong. I think it's in Romans 7 where Paul says, I didn't know I was coveting. I didn't know, or at least I didn't know it was a sin until the law said, do not covet. At that point, now here's the thing. Once the law has told you not to do something, because it was always a sin. It's not as though you weren't sinning just because you didn't know it was a sin. But the moment you do know it's a sin and you keep doing it, now you've committed what? A trespass. How do we use that word frequently? You trespass when you go on someone else's property, right? Because there's a line that you're not supposed to go past. And when you go past that line, you have trespassed. Well, once God's law tells you not to do something, you're always sinning. But now that you know you shouldn't do it, but you continue doing it, you're trespassing. You're sinning in a very high-handed, deliberate, rebellious, intentional way. If you've ever had a child and you tell your child, do not touch that, and then your child's looking up at you with their hand and going like this to touch it anyway, and you can feel, you almost feel your flesh as a parent flaring up against your child because of that child's rebelliousness. The trespasses when we're looking at God, and we know his word says not to do it, and we go like this, and we just repeatedly do it. That's a trespass. So my point is a trespass is a very serious sin because it's a sin that's been done intentionally not ignorantly, knowingly. It is one of the worst sins we can commit because it's done in such a high-handed, intentional way. And the prodigal son committed numerous trespasses. 
But what's the good news? Where sin or trespasses increase, God's grace increases all the more. And to be clear, this verse is worded exactly oppositely of the way we would expect. Intuitively, you would expect it to say, where sin increased, what else increased? Punishment increased all the more. Where sin increased, God's wrath increased all the more. Where sin increased, judgment increased all the more. Where sin increased, God's anger and justice increased all the more. So it's worded oppositely of the way you'd expect. Where sin increased, God's grace increased all the more. And I'll give you an illustration. Do we have any fans of the game Spades, the card game Spades? One? Just Pastor Nathan? No other fans of Spades here? Well, because of that, now I'm going to have to tell you about Spades. (laughs) If you haven't played, I do feel sorry for you. To put in a plug for choir, I thought maybe... Did you guys... So choir is resuming. It's going to be much longer. Um, Jody Van Gelder wanted someone to be doing some teaching at choir, and she couldn't get anyone. And so she finally asked me to do it. So I said I I would do it. So I'm looking forward to Wednesday nights when we're doing choir. And for the... Oh, yeah. Hey, no, I'm not doing choir. Some of you guys are getting all worried. You thought... (laughs) Yeah, you thought I'd be up here singing. No, don't worry about it. You can be... Calm down a little bit. But I'll be here that night with my kids in the choir, and there's going to be some other families who are here for fellowship. Perhaps they can play cards or play spades, and that can be like the, the card game or official game of choir night. So here's how it works. All the cards are dealt to four people, and then they go around, these four people, and they lay down a card, and the highest card wins the trick, which is those four cards. And then you pick them up. <clears throat> spades is the trump suit which means that the lowest spade is still going to trump or beat even a higher card of another suit. And so before the round begins, you're looking at your cards and you're going to bet how many tricks that you think you're going to win out of all the cards that have been dealt to you. And so you feel really good if you're holding what? Jack of spades, queen of spades, king of spades. These are almost like guarantees. You look in your hand and you're like, aha, okay, I've got the jack and the queen and the king of spades. These are like, I'll bet at least three tricks that I'm going to win this round. And this is what I would say. Sin is like the king of spades. It is an incredibly powerful card. There's only one that beats it. And what's that? And God's grace is the ace of spades. It's not to say that sin is trivial. It is not to say that sin is insignificant It's just to say that God's grace is that much greater or more powerful than sin is. Trespasses are deadly serious sins, but God's grace increases all the more. And the Father's behavior is a great example of this because no matter how many times you read this parable, no matter how gracious or loving or kind or forgiving or compassionate, all the things we've talked about over these weeks in this parable, you are never going to see the Father saying anything close to you haven't been that bad. There's nothing from the Father like you haven't really sinned that terribly. You will not see the Father say anything like you haven't been that rebellious. In other words, there's no minimizing whatsoever of the Son's sins. 
The father never minimizes what the son did. The parable never minimizes what the son did. Instead, the parable is intended to maximize the father's grace. It isn't that the son's sin wasn't great in magnitude. It's just that the father's grace was that much greater in magnitude. As much as the prodigal son's sin could increase, the father's grace could increase that much more. The parable does not teach that sin is trivial or insignificant. It is incredibly serious and deadly. It's so much so that sin is what put God the Son on the cross, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And for us, maybe you sit here and you feel like you've sinned worse than the prodigal son. Maybe you look and say, all I wish I'd have done is just went out to a far country and wasted some money. I mean, I do think the prodigal son was a lot worse than that, but let's just say you think you've been even more terrible than him. Even if that's the case, God's grace is still greater than your sin. And if this parable doesn't have application for you, if you're listening to this and you haven't struggled with this, let me tell you why this parable is so important, why you need to take it and put it in your pocket and bring it with you. You're going to meet people who are going to tell you what? God could never love me. He could never want a relationship with me. You're going to meet people who are going to say, you would not believe what I have done. You would not believe how bad I've been. And what should you never say? You haven't been that bad. Never say that to people. Never minimize people's sins. That's always an opportunity to maximize God's grace. Because the fact is, their sin is bad. It is terrible. Don't tell them it's not. Don't make them feel better about bad things they've done. Instead, make them feel better because of God's grace. Now, we've talked so much about God's grace, the obvious question is how can we be recipients of it? How can we be recipients of it? Now, I know you guys, you're theologically sound, you know your Bibles, and so when I say, how can you be a recipient of God's grace, you say, well, we can't earn it, we can't deserve it, that's what makes it grace. That's true. And based on that, it would seem like we can't do anything to earn God's grace. But Scripture teaches that we can put ourselves in positions to receive God's grace or forsake it. And this brings us to lesson three. Humility makes us recipients of God's grace. Humility makes us recipients of God's grace. Just so you don't think this is my opinion, listen to this verse, James 4, 6. He gives more grace, but it doesn't stop there. It tells us how to be recipients. He gives more grace, therefore says, God opposes the proud, but, finish it for me, gives grace to the humble. And there it is. We can receive more of God's grace by being humble. James is quoting Proverbs 3.34, and then this is quoted again in 1 Peter 5.5, which means three times, once in the Old Testament, and two times in the New Testament, we are told that God gives grace to the humble. Now, if God is going to repeat something three times, 
that tells me it's important and he doesn't want us to miss it. So God wants us to know that he has more grace for the humble or that our humility can make us recipients of God's grace. I was thinking this past week of the amount of grace that I have forfeited in my life because of my pride. I was genuinely thinking about how much of God's grace I have probably forfeited, failed to receive because of my pride at times. How much more of God's grace I could have received in situations or scenarios had I been humbler and not been proud. So is it true that we can miss out on God's grace? Yes. Hebrews 12, 15 warns us. It says, see to it. This is God warning you, speaking through the author of Hebrews to tell you, see to it that nobody fails to obtain the grace of God. He says, be careful. You don't want to miss out on God's grace. And you miss out on it by being proud. It says God opposes the proud, but he's got grace for the humble. And the prodigal son is a great example. He humbles himself, and then what happens? He's lavished with grace. He receives everything in these verses. But if he was proud and he'd stayed in that Gentile territory far away from home, he would have failed to obtain the grace of God. So there's an interesting irony that I want to make sure we don't miss. The parable begins with the son wanting certain things. And just follow me for a moment. The son is coveting. There's things he desires. He wants for his life. And so he pridefully goes to his father and he says, give me my inheritance. Give it to me right now. I don't care if you're, if you're alive or dead. Let's just pretend like you're dead and give me what's coming to me. And then he goes off to get all those things that he wants. And what happens? He ruined his life. He was miserable. There's actually the idea that when he went off on his own, he experienced misery, and when he came home, he experienced mercy. So he pridefully says to his father, give me all this, and he fails to get any of the stuff that he wanted. His pride caused him to lose everything, to, to be at the lowest point a Jewish boy could be in the, in the pen with the pigs. But when he humbled himself... Do you see that that's when he received what he wanted? When he humbled himself, that's when he was lavished with all of those things he was craving in that far country. He gets the clothes, he gets the jewelry, he gets the friends, he gets the celebration, he gets the love, he gets the acceptance, he gets the joy. Not when he's off in rebellion, but when he humbles himself. Now, we face the same temptation. This is not to say that if you humble yourself, all of your wildest dreams are going to come true. That's not my point. The point is this. When we humble ourselves, that's when we make ourselves recipients of God's grace, however that happens to look in our lives, because we face the same temptation as the prodigal son. We want to pursue the world like the prodigal son did because we believe that that's where all of our wildest dreams are going to be satisfied, and then we're going to get to experience all of those wonderful things that we won't get to experience when we're under that strict thumb of God who's always trying to withhold all happiness and joy from us. And the son went out and he found that it's the exact opposite of that and that to be away from his father is to be miserable. So we're tempted, like the prodigal son, to run after the pleasures that the flesh longs for and we quickly find out that the pleasure the world offers leaves us emptier than before. God alone offers true satisfaction and blessing. 
Think of how much the father of the prodigal son resembles our heavenly father as described in this verse, Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us or lavished us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He sounds like the prodigal son just lavishing his children. So just as the prodigal son ran to the world and realized that true joy and blessing was found with his father, so we find true joy and blessing that we seek from our heavenly father. Now Warren Wearsby shared something interesting in his commentary, and I want to conclude with this. He said, no matter what some preachers or singers might claim, we are not saved by God's love. God loves the whole world, and the whole world is not saved. We are saved by what? God's grace. And this is correct, because God loves everyone, but everyone is not saved. If all it took to be saved was God's love, there would be no unbelievers. Everyone would be a Christian. Nobody would go to hell. It takes God's grace for people to move from being unbeliever to believer. Our pride will cause us to forfeit God's grace. If we want to be recipients of God's grace, if we want to be saved, we must strive to humble ourselves. We have to acknowledge that we are sinners. We must repent of those sins. We must cry out to God for his grace, recognizing that he has provided a savior, a savior that we need to be saved from the punishment that our sins deserve. If that's something that you haven't done, then can I encourage you today to please recognize that God's grace is greater than your sin. Father, I thank you so much for the incredible example of your grace as shown in this parable as you lavish your son with all these gifts and rewards. I know it's meant to teach us more than humility provides us with gifts or rewards. Instead, it's to teach us that no matter how sinful we've been, your grace exceeds that, Lord. And so I thank you so much for that. No matter what we've ever done or could do, Lord, no matter how terrible or sinful we could be, no matter how much our sin would increase, your grace would increase even more than that, Lord. I pray that we would remember this, if not for ourselves and for those people that we would meet who need to hear these truths. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.